last week in his announcement, uh, Dean drew our attention to this week's Christian tradition called Ash Wednesday. And of course, all the other events took our, our minds off Ash Wednesday with ice and snow and everything. But the Christian calendar, we're in that Christian season now that leads toward from Ash Wednesday all the way to Good Friday on April 3rd and then Easter Sunday, which has very much been central to the Christian understanding for 2,000 years. And this sermon this morning is, has an eye on that, it has an eye on the events that lead up to Good Friday, what we call Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and it'll be the third and our final week, these last three Sundays counting today, have been efforts to move into the world envisioned in John's Gospel. Uh, two weeks ago, this, the woman at the well, last week, Nicodemus, and today, Jesus comments in the 12th chapter. We gather today here in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee, we're gathering as a church, gathered for church. Of course, not everybody's gathered here. Some of us are zooming in from Franklin and places afar. Members, former members, all of us, whether here or zooming and looking for community, to experience what it means to be a church, I should say what it means to be followers of Jesus in these utterly unprecedented times that we now occupy. That phrase, unprecedented, is going to, we're going to get tired of hearing that. I'm not tired yet. I still think this, this, these times are just unprecedented. We gathered as opportunity to see friends, to renew acquaintances, people who've come to symbolize here at Fourth Avenue, faithfulness and commitment and heritage. It's a great source of hope for us, an opportunity to remember who we are as Christians at this place who long to follow Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, we remember best who we are when Scripture's world, the world that's envisioned in Scripture, becomes our reality, essential to our reality, which is possible when we move into that world that Scripture envisions in the narratives of the biblical text, not interpreting the stories to meet our perceived needs, which is a traditional approach to Scripture, but allowing the stories of Scripture to interpret us. And we do this when we walk into this envisioned world, put on a character, live into a plot, enter into a dialogue, which allows this reality in Scripture to impact our own. So, listen with that in mind to the Word of God as it's told in the Gospel of John, and the reading is from the 12th chapter in the 20th verse through the 36th verse. And there will be references to the context where this passage is being read, so you may want to open it up to have a, have a look through. John 12, verses 20 and following. Listen carefully. Now some Greeks were going up to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip. And they made a request, and they said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Andrew, or Philip, told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And Jesus responded. He said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Now, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be. If anyone serves me, God will honor him. Now, my soul has become troubled. And what do I say? I say, Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now, the crowd who stood by heard the sound. Some said, oh, that was thunder. Others said, oh, no, that was an angel. Jesus said, this voice came, not for my sake, but for yours. Now, judgment is upon this world, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Now, he said that to indicate what kind of death he was going to die. But the crowd said, the law says that Christ will remain forever. What do you mean the Son of Man will be lifted up? And who is this Son of Man? Jesus. For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. You have the light. Believe in the light, so that you might become children of light. And this is the word of God. This is our story, though it's not the only story that we hear. We are living in an unprecedented time when stories are coming to us from all angles, being told in our society today. And we, without even knowing it, have allowed these stories that we're hearing outside to shape us to tell us what we need to define our life's ambition, to define and even mold us, like this one. Once upon a time, there was, the kitchen was merely a self-contained room, stuck in a corner, no style, no all toiled, but no more. The American kitchen is the heart of the house, emotionally and architecturally, proportion and finish, presented to please the demands of today's buyers. Prestige, style, cherry wood, absolute black granite, the beauty of natural stone with French orca glaze and an alabaster copper backsplash. Or allow your eyes to feast upon the photo in shades of blue and lush grays, in a white halo against a black setting. This is the all-new M-Class Mercedes-Benz, completely redesigned, sleek, aggressive, aerodynamic body, luxurious interior, and the ad reads, more than a redesign, a rebirth. Or Nashville's International Market with hand-picked exotic produce from around the world, Costa Rica organic bananas, Australian blue squash, Korean peppers flown first class with special delivery to the international market where the ad reads, shouldn't every day hold a little advantage. 
It's all of a piece, flowing smoothly from kitchen to car to the international market. These ads are from last week's Nashville's Luxury and Lifestyle website. Premier shopping for upscale fashion and southern charm, carefully curated for everyone who considers himself or herself on a fast track to distinguished elegance, a true reflection of your image. The webpage comes complete with drawings for a two-year Lexus lease to get us started toward luxury that lasts a lifetime. I'm here to tell you that we are surrounded by these competing narratives, which are false, but powerful and seductive, capable of overwhelming us, overshadowing the true source of our identity, which is found in the world that's envisioned in John's Gospel. American cultural narratives think, think that John's envisioned world is false, and they act as if Christianity doesn't exist, as if Jesus never lived, and then they go ahead and they pickpocket our language. M-class Mercedes, born again. <laughs> but you and I are here this morning as a community who believes John, who wrote these things, who wrote these things so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing have life, life in his name. Our story, the story that you heard read a few minutes ago, has as its immediate backdrop two scenes that are memorable for their strong appeal to the senses. The opening scene, verses 1 to 8 there in John 12, occurs just after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And Martha, who had protested the evil odor wafting from the grave, is serving dinner now, while Mary, her sister, is anointing Jesus' feet with a large quantity of genuine spikenard ointment, to such an extent that she must dry his feet with her hair. This ointment, this warm, intense, musk-like perfume is both spendy and smelly. John emphasizes the odor. He says the house was filled with the fragrance. Judas makes a fuss over the expense, thinking that Mary's fragrance is really wasteful spending and should have been kept, bottled, and sold. But Jesus explains that the musk-like aroma that fills the house is preparing his body for burial. The sense of smell. The other backdrop scene, chapter 12, verses 9 to 19, right next to that one, doesn't have a memorable odor. It's seen with the eyes. Watch as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. Notice the big, leafy palm branches the people are welcoming, they think, a national hero. Observe that Jesus is not on a king's war chariot, but he's seated, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, watch the watchers. The crowd is oblivious, John says. They want to get their eyes on the star of the last show, the once dead Lazarus. And even the disciples don't see it at the moment. They'll remember later. Eventually they'll see it when Jesus is glorified. And the religious leaders, they're gathering in little clumps one with another. They say, look at that, will you? Just look at that. The whole world is going after him. 
But what I, want you, well, what I want you to remember from this collection, this story, is the sight of Jesus seated on a donkey. That's the backdrop that prepares you for the narrative that you just heard read. But in our narrative, instead of the senses of sight or smell, our story had the overwhelming sense of sound. In fact, at first hearing, while you found it so hard to follow, it has the sound of a cacophony. There's so many voices. The narrator who has to navigate us through the sound. The crowd who has two different speaking parts. God has a rare epiphany. He talks. And Philip talks. And Andrew talks. And the Greeks say, sir, we wish. And Jesus has the most lines. And he's talking in parables and has declarations and proverbs and a soliloquy. And he teaches and he explains and he corrects. Why, if we were to act this out, the entire congregation here would have a speaking part. Half of us would have to memorize our parts. And the resulting sound would be like the cacophony in this sanctuary after the last amen, pre-COVID. That's what it sounds like. But even when we isolate the dialogue, listen to the various speakers deliver their lines, it's still hard to understand. God says, I have glorified and I will glorify again. Some think they heard thunder. <laughs> Somebody else says, I think it was an angel. Jesus says, and I, if I be lifted up, and the narrator immediately has to step in and tell us he's talking about his death. Lifted up on the cross, which is the first upward swing, rising from the dead into the final ascent into heaven. Lifted up, all of which the people don't understand, according to verse 34. And even for us, with this helpful narrator, it's still confusing. Partly because we prefer where seeing is believing. But in John's gospel, Thomas shows up wanting to see with my own two eyes, he says. I want to put my fingers into. I want to put my hand into. And then Jesus appears and he says, really? You believe because you've seen. Blessed are they. And you get the distinct impression in John's gospel that seeing isn't necessarily believing, which is why we should try to lean into this story and listen. Even though misunderstanding is embedded in the narrative, even though the characters aren't hearing very well, and even though Jesus uses phrases that are almost lost on us, like lifted up, like my hour has come, like glory, like death. If your four-year-old grandson and you walked up to John and your grandson said to John, Mr., you talk funny, you'd be inclined to agree with your grandson. But this is our language. This is the church's tongue. So why do you suppose these words have fallen into disuse amongst us? Consider this untitled poem. My mother said, of course it may be nothing, but your father has a spot on his lung. That's all that was said. My father at 51 could never speak of dreadful things without tears. In two weeks, the exploratory revealed an inoperable lesion. Doctors never told him and he never asked. 
Seven months later, just after his 52nd birthday, his eyesight going, his voice reduced to a whisper three days before he died. He said, if anything should happen to me. That poem is untitled because we don't say that word. We don't like that word. We pretend that that word will not apply to us, and that's how we've lost it. But when I am lifted up, Jesus said, when Jesus is lifted up, the narrator explains, he's talking about his death. When Jesus is lifted up, God promises, he will glorify his name. In the day that Billy Graham died a couple of years ago, the Detroit, Pre the Detroit Free Press, in its headline, used the word glory. But it wasn't on the front page, it was in the sports page. The University of Michigan's football team had won a big game, and the headline was Road to Glory. So we're here to report lost or stolen, the word glory, which has been confiscated by the wide world of sports. The word death seems to be wandering off someplace into the woods, and Mercedes-Benz is driving away with the phrase, born again. And so without the language, we're hamstrung, we're handicapped, we're limited. It's as if our churches are suffering from that debilitating and humiliating disease that starts with an A. But when I am lifted up, I will draw everyone to myself. And we say, I recognize your face, but I don't know who you are. Struck dumb at the very moment in these unprecedented times that we most need biblical words and biblical categories and a worldview that is faith-shaped because we are, can't we all admit, in a crisis and the competing stories have overwhelmed us. Last Saturday night, there was a church dinner. It was the up-and-comers class, mask optional. They met at a member's Gulf Coast chalet, three stories on the banks of the beautiful Gulf Coast. It was a wine and cheese party, fine wine, local reds, crisp and fruity Chardonnay, a wide variety of imported cheese, and a tasteful assortment of little dainty black and brown breads. And on the second floor of this up-and-comers church party, there was a 20-something crowing about the house, house purchases he's made this last year, which he believes have all doubled in value. And he's thinking about buying more property and getting into the landlord business. And a deacon commends the young man's business savvy, but he recalls his own exploits before the bubble burst, and he advises, make as much money as you can and then get out before it happens again. And out on the deck, overlooking the golf, someone mentions golfing with the governor, and someone else brags that they went to the White House last year and dined with the president, and rumor has it that one of our number may run for the Senate, and words fail to describe how stimulating I find these people and this party in these conversations. But as your preacher this morning, I must tell the truth and say simply that from the chalet's third story there on the Gulf Coast, it's very hard to see Jesus on a donkey, let alone lifted up. 
and the smell of the crisp and fruity Chardonnay has suffocated the fragrance of the spikenard perfume. But our other option is not much of a draw. Sundays after church potluck in the whitewashed, cinder-blocked basement with Aunt Irma's lime jello salad. I'm speaking of the church where the elders called an emergency meeting at 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoon because at the morning service, the song leader appeared to coax some teenagers to clap their hands, which was the last straw for the treasurer who snatched his jacket and grabbed his Bible and stomped out of the services, threatening to place his membership elsewhere and take his sizable contribution elsewhere. And this is the crisis in which we find ourselves, one of the crises. These two churches that we've created, in one, eyes are bright and interest is high and members have made peace with society, or should I say, with an alliance with the principalities and the powers. And the other, with the protesting treasurers busy swallowing camels as they strain out the gnats. But in these days, these days that are so unprecedented, we long for an alternative story, to find others like ourselves, to live in and experience an alternative narrative. We've developed, I think, a, an appetite for the world envisioned in Scripture. We've been long enough regaled by the gospel according to political operatives, the gospel according to global fashion and fine jewelry, the hour has come for us to live into the world envisioned in John's gospel. So I would like to take you this morning to visit just such a congregation. When we arrive at this church and we are making our way to a building passing through the parking lot, I want you to cast your eyes upon the members' cars. I want you to notice not the cars make, model, and year, I want you to look at their bumpers, how clean their bumpers are. There's no stickers. There's no Biden-Harris, no Trump-Pence stickers. This is symbolic. Evidently, this church refuses to pledge allegiance to any political party. And now we enter the foyer. It is so beautiful. There's a long mural along one wall with single portraits a gallery of oil and watercolor, paintings along the other, the ones you'd expect in John's Gospel. Mary weeping, mistaking Jesus for the gardener. Peter and John sprinting to the tomb, and then a still life, a basin of water, and a towel. But on the day that we visit, the accent lights shine upon two paintings and clusters of disciples or groups of Christians are gathered around these paintings. They're talking about the images and talking about the implications for their own lives. In one relief done in basic colors, dark blues, shades of green, browns, and a dash of red, Peter, Peter is wielding a sword. He's finishing his backswing, and Melchus is grabbing his ear and reeling. And Jesus has grabbed Peter's forearm and he's dislodged the sword from his hand. And the caption underneath says, put away the sword. 
And the congregation remembers and talks about their own battles to take up weapons of the world. And the accent light shines on another portrait, this one of Pilate and Jesus. It's not the one that we're familiar with, where Pilate has his back to us. He's addressing a crowd assembled beneath his portico, leaning over the balcony rail with his one arm gesturing back to Jesus like this. It's not that image. No, the lights fall upon a more sinister Pilate, confronting Jesus face to face. And Pilate is looking at Jesus and he seems to say, do you have any idea who I am? Do you know what I can do to you? What I could do for you? Just a little compromise, Jesus, and I could make your life a whole lot easier. And Jesus stares back. And the congregation says, he never compromised with Pilate. He didn't even compromise a little. And Jesus says, when I am lifted up, the ruler of the world will be cast out. And these are the stories that are on everybody's mind. This church that we're visiting believes and acts as if computer porn and M-rated video games and websites that lie and claim that materialism reflects our image are all of a piece. This church knows that worldliness is a habit that is so hard to break. And this church will not compromise. This is the church that refuses to get into bed with Pilate or Caesar and others who wield power and make promises. And when the treasurer stomps out of the church like Judas making threats, the congregation remembers the scent of the spikenard perfume and refuses to compromise with such worldly powers. And now we leave the foyer and we move into the sanctuary, if I can use that term. I call it a sanctuary. Maybe it's an auditorium, but that's not the right term either. It's a place. And the light is radiant and it's clarifying from all angles. And we immediately notice that this church has no walls. It's not a mega church here in Williamson County. It's a church, though, that's capable of movement. It's a church that's intended on, intent on serving, where Jesus serves. Now, there are no pews. In fact, there's no theater seats like you might find in a massive community church. A church has a pulpit. The pulpit is made out of wood. It's vertically tall, and there's a horizontal beam near the top. And today... Today, Jesus is preaching, and for his sermon, he takes as his text the 12th chapter of John, and he begins at the 24th verse, and the place is absolutely quiet because Jesus is preaching. Listen, listen to what he says. He says, cling to what the world offers, and you'll lose your life in the process. But if you hate your life in this world, hate the way that it cheapens your life by chasing comfort and luxury, making alliances with worldly powers, if you hate it enough to stop it and follow me instead, watch, watch where I go, watch where I serve, and come serve with me. I promise you, God will honor you. Jesus goes on, he says, I could have protected my life, 
I could have stopped eating with the outcasts. I could have been more respectful of organized religion. I could have made a few political friends along the way. But then I would have loved this life. But I lived my message because a grain of wheat cannot grow unless it dies. You put that grain of wheat in a crystal basket and place it on display in your china hutch, it'll remain useless. But if the seed does what a seed is intended to do, it must be buried. And when the hour comes, it'll crack and it'll burst forth and give new life so there can be wheat in the world. And now the sermon ends. And for a brief moment, complete quiet returns. And for that moment, we have a clear understanding of what Jesus has said and what he means. And then we hear someone behind us. It's a younger voice. Maybe it's a child. She says, he was talking about us too, wasn't he? And the older voice, maybe it's her mother, responds, that's right. We are God's grain of wheat. And now these voices are muffled. Muffled by the sound created by the movement of people. There's groups of three and groups of a dozen, blacks and whites together, young and old together, men and women together, conservative and liberals together, because being a Christian is too difficult to do alone. And we who are following Jesus are moving now throughout Williamson County into the rest homes and all the places where the outcasts live, which is why some stay and serve among us. And so I conclude this morning, brothers and sisters, to say simply this, that we have found a faithful church when we are the faithful church, a church determined to allow scripture to breathe again, determined to permit the Bible to blossom in its natural habitat, determined ourselves to live in the world envisioned in John, where we once again have ears to hear the words of our Lord who said, and I, if I am lifted up, I will draw everyone to myself. God bless the hearing of these words.